I am Brendan Slocum, musician, educator, and author of the upcoming novel, The Violin Conspiracy. I'm here to tell you how music can save your life. Each episode, I talk with someone whose life was also changed by music. Since I'm a classically trained musician, many of my guests might come from that world too. But fair warning, I also rock out to J.O. Blanco and Rage Against the Machine and everything in between. So no matter what kind of music you listen to or play, you're in for an interesting, inspiring, and lively conversation. Thanks for joining me. My guest today is Dr. Leslie B. Dunner. This was one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had. I know that I'm a smarter person and a better human being after just listening to him. All of the bio stuff. Dr. Dunner is currently the conductor of the Interlochen Arts Academy Orchestra. He is also the interim artistic director for the South Shore Opera Company, where he's been music director since 2014 and the resident conductor of the New Jersey Trilogy. He won a Pulitzer Prize in music in 2020 for Anthony Davis's historical work, The Central Park Five. He's had guest engagements with the Chicago Symphony and the New York Philharmonic as conductor. He's appeared with countless ensembles in cities across the world. But what you don't know is that Leslie is one of the deepest, most fascinating people I have ever encountered. Enough of that. I'm going to allow you to become smarter by listening to my new friend, Dr. Leslie Dunner. We are here with Dr. Leslie Dunner, who is just an amazing individual. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this podcast. It's a real pleasure. All right. See, that's how I like to get started. He said <laughs> it was a pleasure. I like it. We would like to know everything about you. How is it that you got started? And was there a particular person or an event that inspired you? We want to hear the story of Leslie Dunner. I'm not sure how much time we have for that. <laughs> um, for conducting, the moment of realization for me was when I was at Eastman. I was a University of Rochester student with a major in optical engineering and an emphasis in laser energetics, geometrical optics, laser energetics. And I took a conducting class because I wanted to do something that was outside of my major. And we could only do one class per year, basically, that was outside of the major because it was so rigorous. It was a new field. And fiber optics didn't yet exist. It came out of that, that course, you know, that, wow. that area of study. But uh, in the conducting class, the Eastman students all made fun of me. And the teacher said at the end of our final, you guys should stop making fun of him. Watch, wait, he's going to be the one who's auditioning you for your jobs. What? And that stuck in my mind because these kids really treated me like crap. And then I did a master's, two a double master's degree. And after that, decided to start studying conducting more seriously because I taught a course where I wanted them, my students to learn about performance techniques in the 20th century that were non-traditional musical techniques. And after that, I thought, well, gee, I like this. I really want to study this some more. And I ended up doing a master's program, but I didn't think it was really worthwhile. So I petitioned when I learned that the Cincinnati Conservatory had a degree accreditation, but didn't have a degree program. I petitioned to create a program. And so I had a graduating class in my field of one <laughs> for my doctorate. <laughs> and it is now recognized as the top doctoral school for conducting in the country. Well, okay. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's so much to unpack there. I am not believing 
that you went into conducting just on a whim because I needed something else to do. Pretty much, yeah. Wow. That speaks a lot to the level of talent that you have. On that, when I <laughs> auditioned for the Detroit Symphony, I found out years later from the, the librarian then, his name was Elhanon Yofi, who was a Russian immigrant, who I had freelanced with in New York City while I was still studying earlier on. And um, years later, we were having dinner and we were talking about my audition period with the Detroit Symphony. And he said, oh, yes, I saw your name on the audition list. And I told him, oh, he's coming. He's terrible. <laughs> and I said, well, that's a mean thing to say. And he said, well, yeah, then you auditioned. You got better. <laughs> and, you know, Russians frequently will say things without a sense of humor. <laughs> and so it was so ironic when he just said, you got better and then took another mouthful of food. <laughs> that is amazing. Wow. So... Literally, conducting just came out of the blue for you. Yes, pretty much. Was there a specific piece of music that you that that was really inspirational? And you know, what I want to hear it. The Firebird by Igor Stravinsky. Okay, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. wait. Okay, if I am a budding conductor, Firebird would not be the piece that I say. Hmm, let me see if I can tackle this. You are an ambitious person. <laughs> <laughs> well, Firebird was the, the piece that really spurred my imagination and still to this day does. And Dance Theater of Harlem, for whom I was principal conductor for a number of years, has a distinctive signature piece for Firebird. I wish everybody could see what I'm going to show you right now. This is the cover from the Dance Theater of Harlem's production of The Firebird with Stephanie Dabney. Wow, that is a beautiful cover. That look at that position is her in the air. Good grief! That is, I think, the culmination of what Firebird means. This flight of fancy with total abandon, and it's that aspect of the music that caught my attention and caught my imagination. Now, when I was in school working on this program that I created, that nobody wanted me to have <laughs> because they didn't want to have a degree program. I told my teacher I wanted to do something worthwhile because he had me doing just a little trio from a Beethoven symphony for a year. And I said, I want to do something that's much more substantial. And he said, like what? So I just picked the piece at random. I said, Strauss tone poem, Don Juan. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's a huge 20-minute tone poem. And he said, well, that's ridiculous. You can't do it. And I said, sure, I can. And he said, no, you can't. And the rumors flew for years afterwards. He said that I threw things at him in a fit of rage. I did not throw things at him. He said, you took things off my desk and threw them at me. I said, I may have punched your desk a couple of times and things moved. <laughs> I didn't throw things. It's all about perception, right? Right. But again, let me show you something very quickly. All of these things just happen to be here. It's not planned. So that is a manuscript that I think is about a thousand years old. My it's from um, a church book from an old monastery in Europe, probably Italian. It's in Latin. And I know it's very old because there are only four lines and a modern staff has five lines, which developed, I think, in the 11th century. So it's before that. And because there are colors, it says that it's somewhere between the 6th and 10th century. So I know it's old. My my, that same conducting teacher gave that to me as a gift for graduation. Oh, my goodness. That is unbelievable. For my final project, he gave me a Brahms symphony to conduct as a student. So we went from throwing things at him to receiving <laughs> gifts that are priceless. Again, that speaks very highly of your level of talent. That is unbelievable. 
Wow. It was a wild ride. And it continues to be a wild ride that I thoroughly enjoy. Well, wow. Let's talk about that a little bit. Like early in your career, what was one of the most uh, significant challenges you faced and how did you overcome it? Well, I think the most significant challenge was actually having the industry recognize my degree, which some people would call a pedigree. But when I started with the Detroit Symphony, it would have been I taught at Carleton College for four years. My fifth year, I took a sabbatical and then started working with the State of Harlem. And the Detroit Symphony contacted me saying that they were interested in me being considered for a staff conducting position when I come to audition. And so I went to the audition right after doing a short tour in South America with the Dance Theater of Harlem. The administration met and said, well, we're going to list you as, doc- as Leslie Dunner. And I said, well, my name is Leslie B. Dunner in print. And they said, fine. And um, there was a meeting with some members of the board, and they said, but we need to acknowledge the fact that he has a doctorate. And the administration said, well, you know, many people have doctorates. They said, well, but he has an earned doctorate. This was not conferred on him by some (laughs) university. He actually studied to get this degree. They said, well, you know, our music director has a, a doctorate too, and he doesn't use doctor when he's being introduced. And they said, yes, but his is an honorary doctorate. This man has an earned doctorate. Mm-hmm. And we would like the these were black musicians, um, black members of the administration, of the sorry, of the board of directors, mm-hmm. or from Wayne State University and our Michigan government from the state legislature. And they said, well, you know, this man has a degree that has been earned. We need to recognize it because he deserves it. That was the biggest hurdle for me. Wow. And it still continues to be a hurdle. So what what do you think that's attributed to? I think it's attributed to my being Black. At that time, as alluding back once again to the doctoral program that I, I helped to reinstate, the doctorate was recognized as something that one would receive if one wanted to become an educator and not if one wanted to become an active performer. I thought it was important for me to earn one because I wanted to learn as much as possible. It had nothing to to do with the goal of teaching or the goal of not teaching. I just thought it was necessary as part of the educational process. And I continued to study after receiving my doctorate in postdoctoral programs and in workshops so that I would hear whatever the cutting edge or whatever the new music scholarship would be on the scene. I wanted to have that information. And I wanted to start to travel, as I learned when I was working with Dance Theater of Harlem, and learn about each of the different cultures where where we worked, Mm -hmm. go back and then look at the music from these different cultures, and then go back to my culture, my Black culture in America, and see what aspects paralleled, and then what I can infuse from one into the other. Both ways, because Mm -hmm. when we started doing gospel concerts, for example, and started having the African-American composers competition at the Detroit Symphony, the aspects of my historic roots were important for me to incorporate into performances so that the orchestra and the audiences could hear that even though the composers might have come from a classical vein in terms of study, they brought their culture with them to their creations. And their creations needed to have that reflected in sound. Now, do you think that uh, that is frowned upon, or do you think it's 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 encouraged? When I was a young professional conductor in the 1980s and 1990s, I think it was frowned upon. And now it is embraced because mm-hmm. there have been so many cultural changes. And we have major landmark pieces like Hamilton. And that shows how far we have come since when I started in the profession, because Hamilton is now seen as a very, very strong, standard, strong 
artistic work. And we have Fire Shut Up In My Bones, which just premiered at the Metropolitan Opera, which would have never happened previously. This is the first piece by a Black composer that the Metropolitan Opera has ever done. We're in 2021. They're over 100 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) So you are a true academic. Yes. Detroit Symphony once asked me to give a lecture before a concert. And at the end of the lecture, before the concert, the artistic administrator pulled me aside and said, what were you thinking? What did you do? And I said, well, you asked for a lecture. She said, well, we meant a talk. I said, but you said a lecture. I used to be a college (laughs) professor. What do you want? A lecture is something you do in college. I gave a lecture. Hey, they got what they asked for, right? That's what I said. If you want something different, ask for something different. We had um, short short, small story. With the African-American composers competition, we had in that first season a small issue. And I know this probably should be confidential, but history has moved forward. And I think we need to reveal some of the things that have gone on, right? Okay, you can do it right here. There we go. (laughs) Because there's nothing that says I can't. So we were in the middle of deliberation for the first African-American composers competition at the Detroit Symphony. Now other places are having fellowship programs and competitions and showcases for emerging composers. This is normally how it's phrased. We were doing it before anyone else, and primarily mm-hmm. because I was there, and they, they saw me as a vehicle to make that happen, which was great. So we're in the final deliberation, and the artistic minister runs in and says, I need to talk with you, Leslie. And I said, well, we're just about to make the deliberation, at which point she became frantic and said, I must talk with you now. (laughs) And so she pulled me out of the room and she said, we have a problem. There's somebody who just can't win. And I said, well, that sounds strange. How can that happen? And they said, well, we have one contestant who is from South Africa, but has immigrated to America. And I said, so what's the problem? They said, but the person is white. And I, I said, well, but we don't know that because we have no identifying names and no identifying markers to the works. She said, yes, but that's our concern. It might be chosen at random. And I said, but that's okay because the person is from Africa and is now an American. And that fits the definition of an African-American. <laughs> he said, but, but, but the person isn't Black. And I said, but you never specified it had to be someone Black. <laughs> You said African-American. We're moving forward. And if this person wins, then that is what we should have done. A different work won, fortunately for everybody concerned. But it was ironic that the one person who was quite literally from Africa, who is now an American, was a concern. The rest of us are African-Americans by heritage. But this was somebody who was born in Africa, who became a citizen in America, a true African-American. Wow. I just thought it was hysterical. <laughs> that is funny. That wow. <laughs> so these are the sorts of things that have gone on along the path of my career that would not be a part of anybody else's career. One of the dancers with the Dance Theater of Harlem, we we performed in Russia with that same dancer dancing at the Kremlin. In the Kremlin. This is not at one of the big theaters or opera houses. This is in the Kremlin. This was at the point where Gorbachev and and um Reagan were preparing to have the summit. So mm-hmm. we were performing and they were setting up at the hotel where we were staying for the summit, for the international summit be- between summit between the two leaders of the world, right? Gorbachev right. and Russia uh, and Gorbachev and Russia and Reagan in the United States. And here we are dancing at the performing at the Kremlin. I'm getting access as a special VIP without going through security. It's phenomenal. And the people who work in the Kremlin are looking what's going on. Cook, cook. 
Cuck means what? (laughs) (laughs) All of this is going on. And one of the dancers said to me, because whenever we tour, we use the musicians for the local, Mm -hmm. the the local um, country. And one of the musicians came up and said, a young dancer, maybe 19. Wait a minute, you're our, our music director, our conductor. And I said, yeah. And he said, and you travel with us. And I said, yeah. And he said, but you leave ahead of us to work with the musicians so that they're ready when we show up. And I said, yeah. And he said, and they're always musicians from the country where we're performing. I said, yeah. And he said, we're always performing in various white countries around the world. And I said, yeah. And he said, man, you must have stories to tell. (laughs) (laughs) And it hit me for the first time. Yeah. (laughs) I had never thought about it from that point of view. My first major production with the Dance Theater of Harlem was in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And the producer, the sponsor for the performance ran up at the end and wanted to shake my hands and said, I wanted to give you congratulations. I've never heard an orchestra sound better for ballet. And then he said, it's never occurred to me that there could be a Black conductor. And he meant it as a compliment. Oh, okay. See, that hit me physically. And that that hit me physically as well. Especially when when I started to think it through, it never occurred to you that there could be a Black conductor. What does that say about your, your method of thought? And what does that say about your perception of my race. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then years later in South Africa, I'm at a meeting of, I wanted to say Politburo, but that's not what they're called. The the ANC was not yet in power. Oh no, I take it back. No, no, the ANC was not yet in power. It was before Mandela was president, two years before Mandela was president. So apartheid had just ended. And I'm in this meeting with the political and legal leaders for the country. I've been called in as a special guest, an envoy, essentially, from the Mm -hmm. United States to represent our culture. There's this big meeting. The first thing that happens is the person I go to the meeting with is white. He's the head of the Arts Council for the country, essentially, because Mm -hmm. it's in Pretoria, which is the the capital of the country. And he's Afrikaner, and so he has a very heavy drawl when he speaks in Mm -hmm. English. It's very, very difficult to understand what he says. (laughs) And so the two of us walk into the room and all of these people are sitting there and they're all white and they're talking about the problem in the country and what to do about the black problem because blacks now have to be treated with equal value and this is a problem for them. And don't I understand what what they're talking about? And I'm looking at the people and then I, I literally look down at my arms and think, What are they not seeing? Wow. Then two years later when I went, it was at the behest of the Mandela um, newly appointed commission for arts, Mm -hmm. culture, and recreation. So I'm going to a Mandela newly appointed commission, right, in South Africa. And now I'm speaking to an entirely Black delegation. And I go in with the same leader from the um, Arts Council, the same Afrikaner. And there is a man who introduces us from the commission, from the Mandela-appointed commission, right? And all of these Black people are sitting around this big conference table like you would see with Donald Trump or now with Joe Biden. And everyone is Black except for the person with me. Oh, it's exactly the reverse of my first time there two years ago, right? And the person is introduced and they go over to the white man to shake his hand. And he says, no, 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 it's not me. It's him. And everybody's jaw in the room drops. 
because it has never occurred to them that this person who's coming in to represent the white culture of Europe, mm-hmm. and that's why we're meeting, why it's important to maintain that part of their culture. Because my standpoint was all aspects of their culture needs to be maintained, and right. needs to be supported, and needs to be promoted. All aspects, not just the new aspects that have freedom and voice mm-hmm. and liberation. And their jaws just dropped. How can it be that this black man from America has come to talk about the white values? And he said, but I'm not here to talk about the white values. I'm here to talk about the importance of all values and that you need to recognize and support and embrace all of your history, not just the parts that were neglected or like your previous history, only those parts that are in power. And that's what we in America need to learn to do, to embrace our history Our white population needs to embrace the fact that slavery was reprehensible in our country more so than any other time in modern history. They just need to deal with it. And once they learn to deal with it, as they learn to deal with it in South Africa, then we can move forward. You can't move forward on your future until you embrace your past. I see. I'm writing that down, writing that down. Comes from Leslie B. Dunner, Dr. Leslie B. Dunner. So the compromise has been in print. We write Dr. Leslie B. Dunner when it's something that's Vocal, it's just Leslie B. Dunner. I am going to be moving because I'm now teaching full-time in addition to having guest performances. And it's important that this part of my my personal history of attaining this doctorate through hard study be Mm -hmm. recognized and be um, celebrated. Absolutely. And so I expect now to be addressed as Dr. Dunner on a regular basis in the real world until I extend this as I did with you, this hand of friendship saying, no, please call me Leslie. When a doctor walks in, if um, somebody else walks into the room or you're addressing somebody to give them a Nobel Prize and they have a doctorate, nobody says, oh, so, um, Niels, tell me about what it was like when you um, dis- discovered atomic fission. No, you, st- you talk about Dr. Borman. Right. Exactly. You're right. You worked just as hard, maybe even a little harder. Maybe even a little harder because to make two steps forward, we have to make five steps forward. And if we only make two steps forward, we end up with one step backwards. That's it. That's it. Which brings me to my next question, actually. What what is your perception for of the climate for black musicians? Do you feel like there is a divide between black musicians and white musicians? There is not a divide between black musicians and white musicians. There is a schism, and I know schism and divide, it becomes a point of semantics, but I don't think it's the kind of divide that we had where there was a racial boundary before. I think Mm -hmm. it's now much more of a a cultural kind Mm -hmm. of inclusion or exclusion. The most interesting part of what occurred and what transpired and what developed from those two visits is that I went to South Africa every year to conduct for 25 years. So every year for 25 years, there were years I worked more in South Africa than in the United States. Wow. Is that um, attributed to opportunity or? There were greater opportunities in South Africa than there were in the United States. Mm -hmm. I had determined early that I did not want to make my name in Europe. I wanted to make it in the United States. Mm -hmm. That may have been a poor decision. Because it has been a real struggle, and I believe I would have been recognized further along and on a different level had I established myself more in the United States, in Europe first. The United States still has not been all-embracing. After all of this time? After all of this time. Why do you think that is? Because the United States still has trouble with blackness. Can you, what, what, Speak on that. Expound a little bit. 
we have had a few people who have managed to have a, a, a certain degree of recognition from mm-hmm. my field. James Dixon was the first. Mm-hmm. Calvin Simmons, who, who died, had his major career in Europe. Calvin Simmons, who was conducting opera, but then died tragically in an accident. Mm-hmm. James the Priest, who did finally have a major orchestra in the United States in Oregon, but mm-hmm. was not doing a lot of the work with the major orchestras in this country. Michael Morgan, who started to get some recognition, who died just two months ago, again, suddenly after an operation. There really have not been any others who have made major strides. Mm-hmm. At this point, I'm probably am doing more for, as being somebody who's American-born than some others. There are a few other conductors who are now not American-born who are working in Europe. But those who are in Europe are not working in the U.S. And those who are in the U.S. are essentially not really working in Europe. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case for my colleagues, my counterparts. What's your absolute favorite thing about music? I, I know you provide like entertainment for tons of people, but what does it do for you personally? I like to think of what what it is that I do, not so much as entertainment, but as an opportunity to share cultures. I think of conducting as being a chamber music musician. In other Mm -hmm. words, you know, when a a string quartet or a wind quintet or a brass quintet plays, everybody has a voice there. With an orchestra, it's slightly different because there's one person who is conceivably in charge standing there over everyone else. And many think that we have a position of power And to a certain degree, we do. But my stance is that I want to be part of the music making. And ultimately, after I share my sense of vision, I I think back to my teacher who gave me that, that, um, that manuscript. He said, the best time in conducting is when you can stand back while conducting and let the music take you along with it rather than lead the music. Wow. And that is the most difficult thing for a conductor to do, to relinquish the reins and let the musicians take the product forward. Why do you think that is? Because we are trained to be in control. Mm-hmm. And once we're, as with people of authority, when you have the power to control, you want to not relinquish that power. But if you start from a, a standpoint mentally that you're not in control, that you're a part of a mechanism, you're part of a group, and you're just the conduit through which that group is expressing something together, then your point your point of reference changes. And it's not about the power. It's about learning how to initiate, inspire, initiate a response from everybody together, galvanize them to synchronize. And then once they're synchronized, let go of the reins enough so that they can move freely. Now, if things need to be steered, then you help to steer one way or another. And the goal is to steer without imparting anything that obstructs or interferes with the general flow. Imagine that you have a pack of 25 horses pulling a wagon, Mm -hmm. right? The 25 horses are great as long as they're all together. One of them hits a stone, and that throws that one person off. You don't want all 25 horses to fall over. You have to find a way to steer that so that one who stumbled can rejoin the others without upsetting the flow. That's how I think of it. That is fascinating. And I'm about to probably get in trouble a little bit, but it's okay because you shared a story from the past, so I can do that. I played under conductors and, you know, as a violinist, it's just, I've never heard a conductor explain 
I just never heard a conductor explain it like you have. I've never heard a conductor take themselves out of the position of power and, you know, join the rest of the group. It's always, I'm in control, do what I ask you to do. I think this is why I get a different sound from my ensembles than mm -hmm. other conductors. I and I have been told by that. audience people that it's, my sound is a different sound. I wish I had the opportunity to play under you. That sounds like a remarkable experience. And, you know, maybe one of these days I'll be able to. I hope so. Hey, you know what? I'm going to take that as an open invitation. That is an open invitation. And I tell you, when, when one is in the middle of a performance, I'm working with high school students now. They're very talented, but they're high school students. Mm -hmm. We just did um, Beethoven Symphony Number no. 5 in the um, Prelude to the Meistersinger, which is an opera by Richard Wagner. Mm -hmm. And uh, after the first measure in the Wagner, I just let them play. What? When it transitioned to the middle, quietest section, yeah. I took the reins so that the, the, the strings and the winds, because they can't hear each other very well, so I need to take the reins. And then at the point where the winds took over the sound, I let it go. And the strings at that point, I could watch their faces. They were listening. And they were interjecting <laughs> intermediately and then you know, dropping out and then coming back in and dropping out. And I was just watching their faces. And the woodwinds are playing and having a great time. And I, I'm making sure that they can stay together, but giving them enough rain so that they can wait for the brass to come in with the big theme. Boom, 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 beam. Boom, 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 And the strings are going, and I'm watching the strings and they have all of this, and nothing is changing on the beat by design, but they're changing not on the beat by design together. And for the first time, they're hearing themselves because they're together. And in the Beethoven, it was the same thing. I said, you know, we don't need to play fast. If you play together for the audience, it sounds fast because they can hear every detail. That's the thrill, the details. Oh, why is it, how come every conductor is not like you? Because they had different training. I created my own program. <laughs> so I had to do my own research. Okay, how many books have you written that uh, I could pass along to a couple of conductors? <clears throat> Zero. I'm sorry. But this is why my best friend who is a singer said, Leslie, you have to start teaching. You have to impart some of what it is that you've experienced and shared and, and learned to others. Because if you take this to your grave, it's a sin. You know what? I'm going to agree 100%. I, I, I'm a... Well, I, I was a high school teacher for like 20 years and, you know, my orchestras, they did really well. They did well. Um, not the most technically proficient kids, but we made music. You know, there's always a handful of kids that are, can play every single note, have those bionic fingers. But as a group, we always made music. And I like to think that I follow your philosophy in letting them create. You know, I was just, you know, kind of steering a little bit. Why is it that that seems like such a foreign concept to so many conductors? I think because the training is such that we are taught, well, we have to, we have so many skills that we have to learn. First of all, mm -hmm. we have to learn something about every instrument mm -hmm. and we have to learn how to decipher what's on the page and decode it. We have to learn how to take our ears and make our ears work with the visual decoding as well as the sonic picture of what's not working in front of us so that we get something. Essentially, there are three different, three different layers that we have to map. And then we have to add a fourth dimension. This is just concerts. This is not with opera, ballet, where you have a fifth element. We have to take what's written on the page, the concept we have in our head based on what's written in the page, the sound that we're hearing that we're trying to match into the concept that's in our head, 
so that that matches what's written on the page. So those are mm-hmm. three different elements that have to be simpatico. They have to coexist. And then we have to add that fourth element, which is real time. It has yeah. to live in the moment. What's on the page is not in the, in the moment. And when we're preparing, we're not in the moment of having an audience. So that audience there, whether it's live, virtual, recorded, is a fourth dimension. We are taught that we have to get all of these things to work in synchrony perfectly. And the only way to have that perfection is to have total control. But I don't believe that perfection exists. I believe in the in the theory of calculus. Calculus is based on the concept of what if. That is the whole premise of calculus. And you think of computers, which comes out of calculus and only works on the principles of zero and one, on and off. That's all computers are, on, off. Switches, synapses, on or off. If we work on that premise, then what we strive for can never be attained. But it's the it's the process of striving and getting as close to that ideal that makes what's exciting. If you reach the ideal, you no longer have a goal. But think about it. The people who have been on top of Everest, the people who have reached the North and South Pole, what are they doing after they do that? Very Trying true. to find a goal. If the goal is literally unattainable, it's like reaching nirvana. Nirvana can be different things to different people. It can be different places. It can be different times. It can incorporate different elements. As soon as you reach nirvana, it's time to move on. Okay, mind completely blown. I'm glad I have this hat on to keep uh, my head. This is the part in the podcast, Leslie, that you get to ask me anything you'd like. What is it like to you writing a book? Because I've been asked by a number of people to write books on different things. I worked in a safari park trying to rear essentially adolescent lions. You walk with them in the morning, you walk with them in the evening, you give them medication, you take them out, you um, are trying to get their natural instinct to hunt, to kill, to eat, to kick in because Mm -hmm. they're not part of a pride so they don't see it. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that we want to take these animals that were born in captivity and introduce them into the wild in different parts of the, the world, in different parts of Africa. They can't stay in their host country. And the only way that that can happen is if they learn it through a pride, a pack. And Mm -hmm. so their pack are humans. And so you go out with them, literally, and you just, until they, I mean, the the safari park runs out of animals because once they, you know, this kicks in, they eat the animals. (laughs) And so there are other ways that we we go to, to farms where animals die and we bring those in and they're chopped up. And then there are scavenger hunts where the animals that are between this young stage and the stage of being ready to release where they will eat us. They're not where they're in that that middle stage where they will eat us if we're available. But if we're not available, they will eat what we prepare for them. Mm-hmm. As opposed to the young ones who, unless we're alone like I was one day, that shouldn't happen. They will not, and it was more of a challenge than wanting to eat me. Challenge to show that this, I'm, you know, it's like a teenager who says, "Well, I'm, I'm grown." And that's what yeah. this one lion wanted to do with me when he saw me alone. Oh. He wanted to challenge me, and so he tried to jump over a 15 foot fence to challenge me. But you know, <laughs> the ranger said he will win. I said, "I have my stick ready," <laughs> and the ranger said, "He will win." <laughs> Anyway, so that was that. Shark cage diving boats. These are all volunteer programs that I work at because I believe in environmental and humanitarian volunteerism. So I worked in an old age home in Africa. I worked in a home for um, people of all ages who have major, major physical disabilities in an orphanage. Um, I want to work some now in Rwanda. And um, 
do a combination of environmental and humanitarian now that the country is no longer going through genocide. Mm-hmm. But these these sorts of things are important to me. I went to Antarctica to learn about what's happening with the environment and learned all sorts of things about penguins. I went to India and had problems with the government because I went there from Kenya and they don't like mm-hmm. the Kenyans. And so I was held and had to extricate myself from that when the American embassy amb- abandoned me. I pray for those people in Afghanistan because our country yeah. does not do very well with extricating their citizens. But um, what is it like to write a book? Because I haven't written a book about all of these different things because I don't know how to do it. Oh, my gosh. Well, okay, let me start by saying I find that very difficult to believe that you don't know how to do something. I'm just saying, because <laughs> you've done it all. <laughs> Writing this book was, um, believe it or not, it was actually easy. The story parallels a lot of my experiences, both good and bad. So it was it was actually easy to write. It was quite therapeutic, to be honest. Like I said, both the good and the bad things. My primary teacher in college, Dr. Rochelle Vetter Huang, taught me how to play the violin. She made it really easy to write the character in the book that's based on her because every experience that I've had with her has been a positive one. You know, she encouraged me. And so what am I going to do? I want to let everybody know how encouraged I was by this woman who basically taught me everything that I know. She taught me how to play the violin. She taught me how to teach. And, you know, it those experiences, I felt like the stories that I was telling in the book were not just unique to me. Being a Black man playing violin, a musician or whatever, you know, like I hear a lot of parallels in the stories that you've told with things that have gone on in my life. And you know, unless there are forums like this or like the book, people don't know about it. And these things need to be like, what was it you said earlier about uh, you've got to embrace your past before you can move forward? I feel that 100%. And I feel like this is my contribution to the world, basically, to allow us to do that, to move forward. I applaud you for including all of the various aspects of your experience. You refer to them as good and bad, and I'm I'm sure at some level that they were motivating versus instructive. Yes. The ones oh, yes. that were good were motivating. The ones mm-hmm. that were bad were instructive because we learn by what doesn't work. Sure. That conducting teacher that I had, I think, is similar to your violin teacher. I talk, you know, I talk about the explosion and all of these other things, but he shaped me. The first teacher I had was the one who motivated me when he said, you know, this is the guy that's going to be auditioning you for your jobs. I will never forget that. That made me want to go forward. That is amazing. Was there ever a time that you were confronted by someone who didn't quite get what you were doing and why you were doing it? And and how did you get through to that person? Um, that would be every day of my life. <laughs> I've gone from being frustrated to being annoyed, to being angry, to being reconciled, to being indifferent, to being above. That is now to give it credence, to give it value, to give it worth, to give it power. I have to own it. I have Mm -hmm. to embrace it. I have to recognize it. I have to give it some sort of merit. I no longer do that. That is below my, that is below my station. Mm-hmm. So people who think that way are not less of a person because of me, but what they think and what they value are not my values. And so I do not embrace them. 
and I don't embrace what those people have to say. And I will, as I just recently did, walk past them, acknowledge to myself that that their presence is in existence, mm-hmm. and that I don't need to do anything else. I can move on. Like when you see some lint on the floor, you see some trash someplace, you can stop and pick it up and try to do something about the trash. Or you can say, you know what? That trash is a minuscule portion of a pile, like when I was in India, of rubbish that has manure, spittle, everything else. I cannot affect, I cannot affect that in a positive way. I'm moving past it. Up until this year, I felt I needed to appease people. Mm-hmm. I needed to placate people. I needed to compromise my beliefs so that they were non-threatening because I'm a Black man. That's no longer important. If I'm threatening because of a Black man, you have made that determination, not me. And if you're threatened by it, leave. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's that simple, right? I am in my domain because my domain is where my body exists. If you don't want my body to be in your domain, move your body. <laughs> yeah. Leslie, who is your favorite composer? What's your favorite piece of music? Three favorite composers, Mozart, Brahms, Stravinsky. The f- first favorite piece of music would be Stravinsky, Firebird. Second favorite after the Firebird would be, I think, Brahms Symphony Number no. 2 because of its broad, sweeping lines. And to me, it's very contemplative. Mm-hmm. And the third piece would have to be the Mozart clarinet quintet, which I think wow. is the essence of um, the human soul. But okay. that's third, not first. That, oh, but that's third. Okay, okay. That is unbelievable. That I mean, I, I, I aspire to be you. I'm not even kidding. I'm not saying that, you know, hyperbolically. I aspire to be you. Just your way of thinking, your way of expressing your artistry and everything. You're exactly what I want to be. Well, I take that as the ultimate compliment. I thank you for that. I have the utmost respect and awe for the fact that you can take your life and put it in print. I still, I really don't know how to do that. And I am in awe. I am agog. I like to use archaic words every now and then. I love the word agog. That's going to be my next new favorite word. (laughs) Wow. Tell us where we can find you, what's going on, you performances or anything. Interlocking Arts Academy is the name of the site. And the radio station that broads us is Interlocking Public Radio, which is IPR, which is one of the two original NPR stations Mm -hmm. from 1962. And so people can hear our performance live anytime we have a concert. And you can go to the Interlochen Arts, it's Interlochen Center for the Arts to find out all of the schedule. Wow. Leslie Dunner, you're doing it all over the place. That is amazing. And I cannot thank you enough. People have to look for, there's an opera called The Central Park Five. And people need to know the history of the story of the Central Park Five because that's what brought Donald Trump to prominence. And he is a character in the opera. It's about four young Black men and one Hispanic man, all who were accused of brutally beating and raping a white woman. And they were imprisoned for from five to seven, five to 13 years. This piece was made into an opera by a composer named Anthony Davis. And it won the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for music, which I premiered. So people should look for that work because it is um, revolutionary the same way Hamilton is revolutionary. Look for the Central Park Five. Wow. Dr. Leslie Dunner, I would like to thank you 
for sharing your knowledge, sharing your talent, sharing everything that you've given to us. I do have one last question. Did music save your life? Yes. When I was in college as an engineering major, in my second year, I went through a very rough period. And I was contemplating very seriously not continuing with my life. And um, there was one piece from a composer that I had not um, mentioned, and he is the fourth composer on my list, and that's Dmitry Shostakovich. And um, I discovered his Fifth Symphony. I learned a lot about the Fifth Symphony in the last few years that's different from what we were taught originally about it being a piece of celebration. It was really written as a piece of defiance. It Mm -hmm. saved Shostakovich's life from... At that point in 1936, Stalin came to power and was doing a lot of ethnic cleansing and purging and either killing people or sending them to Siberia up to 25 years to work and slave labor and Mm -hmm. die. And so he wrote this piece, but he included a little message in the last movement to people who knew his other work that he wrote right before a song cycle based on a poem of Pushkin, who, by the way, had a father who was from the Cameroon and whose father was a slave. The greatest writer in Russia is 50% Black. What? Known everywhere except in America. So this piece, this symphony, really became a part of my catharsis every day and kept me moving. And learning this, this information about how it was written and why it was written and the message in it and the fact that it was based on a poem of somebody who was 50% Black, who was a Russian writer, changed my life and gave me motivation to move on. I will never listen to Shostakovich 5 the same way ever again. I played it a couple of times and now it makes sense. His message with the poem is about a work of art, painting, Mm -hmm. that is desecrated by exterior powers and how if one can persevere through the test of time, that desecration will eventually dissolve itself and you get back to your original creation and your original intent, your original spirit. So the theme was... If we can persevere, we can make it. In other words, if we can live through our troubled times, we can overcome. Sound familiar? Heard it before. I heard it again. Russians are our people. Yeah. And when I was over there, they said, we are their people. And I didn't know it until I went there and started to understand their history. Amazing. Leslie Dunner, thank you so much for participating today. We really, really appreciate it. And I wish you the best of luck. And I'm going to be looking forward to your performances. Thank you so much. How Music Can Save Your Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, hosted by me, Brendan Slocum, produced by Hannah Ray Leach and mixed by Eric Coltnow. By the way, my book, The Violin Conspiracy, was released on February 1st and is now available wherever books are sold. It's also been chosen as the Good Morning America book club pick for the month of February, which is an incredible honor, and I am excited as excited can be. Special thanks to Jeff Kleinman and everyone at Anchor Books for their help with this podcast. I'll see you next time. Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. 
The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 